the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech Podcast. I have uh, Elsa Montagnon. She's the Bethy Colombo Spacecraft Operations Manager. Uh, this is a joint venture with uh, ESA, the European Space Agency, and another agency. And I've spoken to a number of people at uh, ESA. They're a very gracious agency. Uh, I've probably spoken to people at their agency six, seven times. So, you know, always uh, super interesting stuff they're working on. So, Elsa, welcome. Thanks for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to talk to you today. Yeah, so uh, this appears to be a joint venture between ESA and another organization. What's the other organization that's, uh, that you're partnered with? Yeah, the, yeah, the other organization is the Japanese Space Agency, JAXA. JAXA. And uh, the collaboration takes uh, an interesting form because, basically, we, we all have one spacecraft on this mission, basically, one scientific spacecraft. So, it's a, it's a modular uh, machine we've put in space now, and uh, yeah, we're bringing to Mercury together. Yeah. So what's what's the uh, goal of that? The Colombo. Tell me some details about the uh, the spacecraft. You know, what's different or unique about it? What's the goal of the mission? Mm-hmm. So the Betty Colombo mission is uh, has as a goal to explore planet Mercury. So uh, planet Mercury was visited so far uh, twice by uh, man-made machines in the 70s with uh, an American mission, uh, Mariner 10, and then in the 2010 decade by uh, another uh, American mission named Messenger. Uh, but it's, it's a bit a planet of still a lot of mysteries. I mean, these missions have unlocked some secrets, but they have asked further questions. So we set it as our goal to, to go there for ourselves and, and answer these questions. So we've put together this, um, this spacecraft with um, uh, two uh, scientific satellites. Um, this is quite good scientifically because it allows us to put the spacecraft in two different orbits and therefore uh, focus each spacecraft on different types of scientific questions. So the European satellite, the MPO, we call it, will fly very close to the planet and concentrate on the planet uh, composition, surface, um, uh, so the, uh, um, chemical composition, uh, and radio science as well, with a, um, an objective to verify the um, Einstein theory of relativity. And the Japanese satellite will fly a bit further away and focus on the magnetosphere of Mercury, uh, and interaction with the solar wind. So from that point of view, it's a bit of a novel way of, uh, of putting a space mission together. And uh, in addition to get these two spacecraft to Mercury, we have also another module uh, called the transfer module or MTM that um, basically we stack all these modules together and the transfer module is responsible for bringing us to the planet, which will take seven years. So it's, a, it's quite a, yeah, a novel way of, of putting such a mission together. So, um have we ever landed a spacecraft on Mercury, or is that 
possible? Can you tell me a little bit about no. Mercury? Well, we, we've not landed anything on Mercury yet. It's quite tough to go to Mercury, as a matter of fact. Um, the trajectory uh, to get there is, is very complex. Uh, the Mercury is so close to the Sun that uh, it, it requires a lot of energy to, to actually go and orbit it. Um, so I guess landing on it will be the next technological step, but uh, it's, it's already quite a challenge to put together a mission to survive in this uh, very high temperature environment and to get there. So for the moment, we'll focus on that. Well, what, yeah, why is it so difficult to get to Mercury? And what in space, um, I, th- I would think that the temperature is uh, extremely low, but how much does it increase or how much does it fluctuate you know, along the trajectory of the spacecraft? Well, basically, the, the problem with the temperature is that when we are in Mercury's vicinity, um, the, the planet itself radiates uh, out four times what we experience uh, here uh, around the Earth, and uh, we are um, one-third of the Sun-to-Earth distance when, when we are around Mercury, and therefore the energy we get directly from the Sun is about ten times what we see here in the Earth. So the spacecraft itself will experience temperature well above uh, 300 uh, degrees Celsius, uh, I, I always say that uh, at the beginning of this program in the early 2000s, uh, that the material database visa was going up to 120 degrees Celsius. So we really had to put some work into finding solutions for all the surfaces that are exposed on the outside of the spacecraft, so the thermal blankets, the solar arrays, the antenna, uh, in terms of, um, of um, uh, so thermal protections and coatings for these uh, parts that are exposed. Uh, we had to uh, define and uh, qualify uh, solutions for, for this problem. So it was quite a challenge, actually, to, to put this, um, uh, to build this spacecraft and validate it for that environment. In terms of the energy level required to reach Mercury, uh, this is another type of problem. But basically, um, the, the, uh, the planet is uh, very close to the sun, so we have to uh, break a lot to actually uh, get to the, to the velocity that allows us to orbit it naturally. Uh, and this requires a very, very large amount of, uh, of energy that uh, if we had to get it from a rocket, it would be almost impossible. So where to get a spacecraft to Mars, for instance, you can basically launch it on almost a direct trajectory to Mars. I mean, with Mercury, this is not possible. So our trajectory is much more complex than that. It involves nine flybys at planets. So once at Earth, twice at Venus, six times at Mercury. And then we use electric propulsion to um, uh, continue the braking maneuver outside the swing bys. Um, and uh, we have uh, nearly uh, uh, what, what we call a delta V. So it's a, it's a delta impulse throughout the mission of four kilometers per second through the, uh, the electric propulsion engine. So it's, it's really massive. So, okay. Um, when, uh, when the spacecraft leaves Earth, Earth, from what I've heard, it moves to what, like 11 kilometers per second. Is that right? Or how fast will the... Was the craft going right. when it left Earth in the first place? I, I don't have the exact numbers. Sorry, I'm sorry, I, I cannot tell you that. Oh, do you, do you know approximately the the difference in speed, you know, from Earth to Mercury? No. Okay, I just didn't know if it's like if it has to go half as fast, but it, but in general, it just needs a lot of energy to slow down. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 the point basically. Yeah. And what about the trajectory? How does it slow down? Like where does it doesn't go directly to Mercury, but where does it go? Yeah, so that's that's correct. So in the first year, we stay in the vicinity of, of the basically we, we always have a trajectory that um, uh, takes the spacecraft around the sun, 
But in the first year, we stay on a trajectory that's very, very similar to the one of Earth itself. And uh, this, we do this such that one and a half years after launch, we get back to the Earth, uh, thanks to this trajectory and a bit of electric propulsion, and we can take energy from the Earth to redirect us towards Venus. Then, when we reach the, uh, the, the, the Venus vicinity, we have another uh, swing by, so sort of a rendezvous with planet Venus, where again we fly by, meaning we exchange energy with uh, planet Venus, um, and we do this twice at Venus. And the objective of this maneuver is actually to uh, reorient the plane of the spacecraft at trajectory to uh, be on the same orbital plane as Mercury itself, because Mercury doesn't have the same orbital plane as the Earth, for instance, so we need a rotation of the trajectory. And this in itself can, can also cost some energy, so we, we do this by, by the planetary flyby at Venus. And then once the spacecraft is around the sun in the same plane as Mercury itself, basically what we need to do is uh, get rid of energy such that our apocenter practically gets closer and closer to the one of, um, to the, to the distances of Mercury itself. And once we get very close and the velocity match more or less, then we can go into orbit around, around Mercury. So it's, 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 a, it's a rather unusual, uh, transfer. Uh, but uh, that's the way to do it if, uh, if missions want to visit planet Mercury. In fact, the, the Messenger mission was following a very similar um, plan uh, of, uh, of trajectory for the interplanetary part. Huh. And you said Mercury hasn't been visited in, in uh, 40 some odd years? No, no, there, there was a, so in, in the, from the year 2011 to 2015, there was a NASA mission called um, Messenger that uh, actually visited Mercury and orbited it, uh, returned a lot of uh, invaluable data about the planet. Uh, they were flying uh, uh, an elliptical orbit around and, and flying as close as 200 kilometers from the surface. In fact, at the end, they, they, they well, crashed or landed on, on, well, crashed on Mercury at the end of the mission, as is uh, common for this type of mission. So uh, there, there's been a, a recent uh, orbiter precursor to, to Bepi Colombo, but as I mentioned, um, but for this type of mission, it's very common to, to answer questions with one mission, but then um, find new uh, topics and, and, and scientific questions which uh, uh, are not answered yet. So typically, the next mission picks up on these findings and expands the knowledge further, and it goes a bit in this incremental way. Okay, gotcha. And you said that Mercury radiates so much energy, even in space, in orbit around it, it'll still be about 300 degrees C. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah it's, oh. uh, sometimes we use the analogy that it's like flying into a pizza oven. <laughs> so it's, uh, it, it's, it's a very, very hostile environment for man-made machines or for any, any machine that comes to that. If we, if we try to land on Mercury, how hot is it on the surface? Yeah, I think it's, it's about 450 degrees or so, uh, from huh. the literature. So it's, uh, on, on the sun lit part, of course, huh? And then on, on the other part that is shadowed by the sun, then, uh, the, the temperature gradient is extremely large, so there that the temperature will be much cooler. Um, but, uh, it's, uh, the, the, the high temperature is really a challenge for any mission that wants to reach the planet. And you said Mercury is not in the same orbital plane in, uh, as Earth, is it, um, how much of a different plane is it in? Is it, you know, how many degrees or what is the earthquake? Uh, I would have to research also the exact number. I'm sorry, this is uh, not, not really, I'm not a scientist myself, so I, I know these things qualitatively, but I don't have the numbers in my mind. I'm sorry, but okay, this is information yeah. that is in the public domain, so it uh, can be found. Yeah, yeah, no problem. So, yeah. Well, what, what have we learned about Mercury last time? And again, what are some of the things that we want to learn this time? 
Well, the visiting of uh, of Mercury generally, it's um, scientifically, it's a topic that uh, fits uh, in in what is called exoplanets. So the, the study of Mercury is interesting because it's the closest uh, planet to our parent star, and uh, as we see in the solar system, there is large differences between Mercury, Venus, uh, the Earth, and Mars. Uh, differences that we don't fully understand. Also, um, the, the theory of uh, the creation of Mercury, the formation of Mercury, is not uh, fully explained. There are contradictory observations, there are various theories, but so far none of the observations fully matches one of them. So it's a bit of, a, of, a, of, a, of an open question, in fact, that uh, we hope to also help resolve. Um, so so in, at a more general level, it's addressing to so expanding uh, the, the understanding that human beings have of their uh, environment at large and understanding how planets are formed, how they evolve over time, which might give us insight on how the Earth could evolve also on longer time scales and understand maybe a bit better what uh, the diversity that there is in, uh, in uh, systems around, uh, around stars, planetary systems around stars. More specifically to Mercury, I think the first um, a very surprising insight, in fact, from Mariner 10, from the mission that flew there in the 70s and did um, flybys of it, is that it has a magnetic field. And this is not uh, really a, a very common um, characteristic in our solar system. There are not so many bodies which have a, a magnetic field, but Mercury does have one. This surprised the scientists a lot because they, they thought, well, it's been so close to the sun and so hot for so long that probably dried out and it's just a dead body. Yeah? But in fact, it has quite a large uh, fluid core uh, that fuses a magnetic field. So the, this is one topic, and in fact, it's one of the reasons why on the Picolombo we have almost one uh, entire spacecraft dedicated to the study of the magnetic field. Um, then uh, what Messenger has, has also uh, discovered uh, is that there are, uh, and there, I'm sorry, I cannot be very detailed because I'm not a scientist myself, so these are not topics of which I'm really an expert, but I understand that um, there are uh, elements on the Mercury surface that, um, for which one would expect that since Mercury doesn't have an atmosphere, those elements would uh, be depleted over time. And instead, uh, uh, they are still there. And, and this puzzles the scientists a little bit, because if these elements are still present, it must mean that there is a process that replenishes them over time. And it's not really yet clear what this process uh, is. So this is one example also of, of an interesting question of that planet compared to other rocky planets which have an atmosphere like uh, the Earth or uh, Venus and Mars. Then uh, another uh, example of a discovery is a messenger also. Um, so one, what, what these orbital missions do is that they study the, um, they map simply the, the, the planet. Yeah? So for instance, um, Mariner 10, when, when it passed by Mercury, returned the map of the planet, but it only mapped it to 45% and not to a very great accuracy. Messenger orbited it for several years and therefore provided a complete map of the uh, planet with a much better accuracy than, um, than Mariner 10. And then not only do we see a lot of craters on the surface, there are also uh, cracks that uh, uh, are indication of um, uh, some uh, processes of maybe contraction of the, of, the, of the surface of volcanism. But they also noticed some uh, constructs on the surface that uh, they called hollows. Uh, it looks like um, uh, if uh, some material had been carved out of the surface a little bit, and uh, it's, it's, uh, in my understanding, it's still not fully clear what could have caused this, um, this formation or these elements on the surface. So these are just a few examples of the type of things that uh, are addressed in, in uh, orbital missions like Pepe Colombo, for instance. Yeah, that's interesting. Would it be useful to also study the sun and hang out in orbit around Mercury or, you know, 
you want to put well, all the resources towards Mercury and forget about the sun at well, that point. In, no, no, indeed, uh, the interaction with the sun is, uh, is a very relevant aspect, and we, we have on, on the MPO um, one instrument that is, in fact, looking at the sun. <laughs> so it's, uh, it's monitoring for solar flares uh, to see whether uh, the, the... What if you could learn about the ketogenic diet and metabolic therapy from the world's top scientists, physicians, and influencers in a four-day experience co-hosted by Dr. Dominic D'Agostino, who's been on the Tim Ferriss podcast in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. If you want to hear about the latest scientific evidence on nutrition and metabolism and its potential to treat disease, increase longevity, improve athletic performance, and yes, help with weight loss, Metabolic Health Summit is for you. Some of the speakers include Dominic D'Agostino, PhD, Mark Sisson, Suzanne Ryan of Keto Karma, Thomas Seyfried, uh, who studies metabolism and cancer, Aubrey Marcus, Georgia Ede, MD, Matt and Mega of Keto Connect, and many, many more speakers. At this conference, we're going to dive into the research and learn how to apply it during real-world applications with four days of presentations. There'll be nightly receptions with keto-friendly drinks and appetizers. There'll be a scientific poster session that includes the latest research on ketosis, human optimization, and more. And there'll be new innovative products at the Metabolic Health Summit Keto Expo. You'll get to network with some of the world's most brilliant minds at the Metabolic Health Summit VIP Mixer and Gala Dinner. For physicians, this activity is jointly provided by Cedars-Sinai Medical Center and the Metabolic Health Initiative. Cedars-Sinai is accredited by ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. Earn up to 21.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits by attending. If you're a registered dietitian, this event has received prior approval by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics for 18 CPEs. Visit MetabolicHealthSummit.com or click on the banner and get your tickets before they're gone because it's coming soon. Remember, it's in Los Angeles, California, January 31st to February 3rd, 2019. We are only weeks away. This is a must-not-miss seminar. Uh, the sun activity basically can be correlated with some of the observations that will be made there. So, indeed, um, you cannot study the planet in isolation, and, um, and it's, uh, it's studied in relation to its parent star, which is so close. So, indeed, there are elements there that, uh, that look at the sun. We also have a radiation monitor on board that uh, will uh, also um, uh, try to, to uh, check what type of particles are around, um, and this maybe can be also correlated to some events we observe on the spacecraft. So it's, it's indeed very relevant to look at the sun as well. Huh. Yeah, I guess I, I never hear much about Mercury, and I don't know if anyone hears much about it, so it's good that it's getting some attention. You know? Yeah, it looks like the moon, so it's a, <laughs> it's really? a repetition of a bit of a boring object. But it's, uh, every time we go to these things, we find interesting things. So it's, uh, we look forward to being there. It will take a while. You said there is volcanism on it, or there's not, or we can't tell yet? Okay, there, there are effects that uh, that uh, are indications of uh, volcanism in the past history. It's uh, we are not talking of active volcanoes and lava flows or things like that. But uh, in uh, in the, the geological time scale we're talking about, basically there have been volcanism maybe um, in much more recently. But we're probably talking. Uh, uh, millions of years more recently than the scientists would typically uh, expect related to the solar system formation. But this is again a topic that the scientists are looking into. Do, do we have any idea when Mercury was formed? Was it formed like before Earth or at the same time or after? 
Well, this is also a topic I'm not really uh, qualified to answer in detail. I mean, uh, that's, as I said, I, I, I know a little bit of the science objectives through my position, but I'm not a scientist myself. I don't study these things, so I, I'm, I'm not able to answer that. Okay, and then when um, are we going to uh, – so how long will it take in total, you know, from the time that Bebe Colombo left Earth until it settles in around Mercury? What's the total mission time? So the the cruise to Mercury will last seven years, and then uh, we have a, an orbit insertion sequence that takes about uh, three months, and uh, then we will have a scientific mission duration of one year with a built-in extension of another year. Built-in extension simply means that when we design the spacecraft and qualified the technical solutions we selected for it, we uh, try to guarantee that it will survive for that long. So we, we, we built in all the margins and so on necessary to guarantee one full year of mission and one year of extension. But uh, typically, our spacecrafts uh, don't just stop working at the end of their scheduled life. I mean, they are there, and if they are operational, then we try to extend their lifetime to so basically keep operating them for longer. So we very much hope that with Baby Colombo, it, it will also be the case, even so, we don't expect that it will survive for decades, as is the case for some other missions we have around the Earth. So there, we, we have mission around the Earth that you launch with a scheduled lifetime of three years, and 20 years later, they're still around. But with the Colombo, I doubt this will be the case. Still, we might be able to squeeze out a few more years, maybe, if the machine doesn't degrade too fast in the high-temperature environment. We'll have to see. Huh. So in total, it's a, a eight-years nominal mission with one-year extension. And it, where is the mission at literally right now? How long until, how much time is left on the mission or has it yet launched? Well, the spacecraft was launched on the 20th of October last year. So we've really literally started our, our mission in space. So the, uh, the Mercury arrival will take place in December 2025. So we still have uh, nearly seven years ahead of us. That's crazy. How, how long, do you know how long it would take if we just made a beeline for Mercury? We went there straight if we could. I know we can. Oh, well, it would be much faster. I mean, I know that for Mars, it takes six months to get there with a beeline. So basically, beeline in space meaning a half ellipse. But uh, so uh, Mercury is a bit closer. I would expect this could be pretty fast. But as I explained before, this would require energy levels that we cannot uh, we cannot provide. So we have to go the long way. It's so crazy. You know, you watch TV shows about space or movies, and the reality is, like, completely different, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's true actually. <laughs> so people, uh, well, yeah, people are not used to this uh, to this time dimensions. I mean, of course, another thing is uh, the delay the delay of the signal in space. Yeah, so when when we'll be at when the spacecraft will be at Mercury, it will take the the signal from Earth uh, twelve and a half minutes up to twelve and a half minutes to, to travel to Mercury, and then twelve and a half minutes to come back. It's not as bad as when you're at Jupiter or so, but it's still significant, and it's another aspect that uh, that is not obvious at first sight that people don't necessarily think of when we talk about space missions. But of course, it requires um, a different way of, of thinking about what you do because you, you cannot just go about in a dynamic way and say, "Well, okay, what do I do today? I'm going to send that command, and then I think about it." You cannot go like that because, yeah. uh, well, you, you you can't you can't work in this interactive manner anymore. So. Um, that, that's the change, the different uh, uh, thinking uh, ways. So you have to apply different uh, methods for this type of mission. So how much time and effort is needed now? Would you guys just sit back and take a nap until it gets close, or is it, there's still a lot of work while it uh, is, is making well, this journey? Well, 
it's quite a lot of work, in fact. I mean, the, um, the, 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 one of the other key characteristics of the Picolombo and specificities is that we fly this electric propulsion technology. Now, this has been around for a while. There are other missions flying this. Um, in, in, uh, in ESA, we had it on, uh, on a mission to the moon a few years ago. And, uh, um, it's the first time we applied it on an interplanetary mission within ESA, but NASA has done it on, on other missions, like, uh, 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 new horizons or, uh, uh, near or, or this type of mission. So it's, it's not, um, it's not a new technology per se, but for us, uh, in terms of operations, uh, for that particular mission, we, we had to, we had to build, uh, a new, new, new software and new processes to deal with it. And, uh, compared to a mission that, uh, goes to its target in a ballistic manner, meaning you just kick it and then you do some corrections, but basically, um, then, then it, it arrives naturally as its target. So let's say it's, it's much more effort because um, the principle of electric propulsion is that you apply a, a low level of thrust, in our case, up to 250 millinewton, uh, sorry, 290 millinewton, but um, you, you do it continuously. So uh, one analogy we use is basically it's as if the spacecraft would be pulled by a couple of hundreds of ants, actually, but all the time. And through the fact that you do this all the time, you accumulate quite a lot of, uh, of energy, and then in this way you can modify the trajectory in a very uh, effective way. Uh, for us operators, however, it means that uh, we, this, this, because it's happening all the time, the corrections have also to be applied virtually all the time. So when we are in electric propulsion thrust, we have to look at the spacecraft every week and um, uh, correct the parameters of the thrust the week after based on what we observe during that week. Um, so in a sense, it's, it's more work than if we were flying a, a, a more classical mission, let's say, and uh, in flying ballistically in space. So it's, um, but it's very interesting. I mean, uh, it's, it's uh, this, at the moment, I, I'm told that the, the thrust uh, levels we have are, are the most powerful that are currently flying in space. Um, and uh, we, we are we are actually uh, we have commissioned it in the last month, and now we are using it operationally. And it's exhilarating to see this technology actually working. It's been the result of uh, decades of work uh, in industry and many efforts and uh, many difficulties as well. Uh, but it's uh, so far working very well in space. So it's, uh, it's very exciting to 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 experience that. Well, how, how much attention does it need to steer? Do you have to? Have someone dedicated like 24/7 to monitor it and steer it, or do you just like nudge it once a day or once a week? Well, basically, because of the of the propagation delay and the cost of um, uh, keeping a, a ground station contact with the spacecraft, I mean, this is a resource which costs money. We we typically don't do it all the time, so we we've moved away from 24/7 operations since a while in, in ESA. Um, so for Betty Colombo, basically the, the, the goal is to have a contact with it once per week for typically eight hours. Yeah? Um, at the moment, we look at it a little bit more often because since we started this uh, operation in December, uh, late December actually, uh, and it's a new technology uh, that we don't know yet very well, we, we, we felt it was a bit too premature to leave it alone for one week without having a look at it. So at the moment, we look at it uh, three times a week on Mondays, Thursdays, and Fridays. But um, only the Thursday pass is, uh, is the pass where we really check the collect data to check the trajectory and we command the spacecraft. The Monday and Friday passes are just checking, and in, uh, if everything goes fine, we are not actually we are collecting the data, but we are not actually doing any any active things with it. So in this sense, it's um, it's not um, an operator continuously there watching the thing and steering it with a joystick. It's really 
Uh, we look at it every week. We collect the data. Then offline during working hours, we process this data, uh, re-optimize the trajectory based on the data we collected, uh, regenerate the maneuver parameters, and then we prepare the commands for uh, with the new maneuver parameters. And then during the navigation pass on Thursday, we are playing these commands. And then they they cover typically two weeks. They, there is a they are what we call time tagged. So there is a table on board with times attached to all these uh, instructions. And uh, we just load this table, and then the spacecraft executes it on its own, and it doesn't need us to do that. So we can do it offline. It doesn't require contact to do that. So I guess there'll be periods where there's a lull, where you don't do much, and then once you get close to, uh, you know, the orbit of Venus, for instance, and then obviously Mercury, then the activity is going to get real busy for a while, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's exactly the way it works. So on missions of this kind, especially during the interplanetary cruise, we alternate uh, periods of intense activity, like um, around the swing-by, for instance, because then we have to really target the spacecraft to the swing-by point very accurately, um, with periods which are a bit more quiet. Okay, this year, we're not going to get completely quiet because we accumulate a total of four months of electric propulsion, which is, well, quite quite a lot, a lot to, to start with. And then we still have some check uh, checkout operations to do with uh, with um, the instruments that we have on board with two spacecraft and the Japanese spacecraft. So um, our, our, our work plan is quite busy this year. But uh, for example, next year we have two flybys: one by the Earth in April and one by Venus in October. And in between, there is no electric propulsion, so I would hope that uh, things are a bit more quiet. And when it's quiet, we basically take a contact a week. We dump the data that the spacecraft accumulated in the last week. We uplink new commands if we have some, but we try to space out the, the, the commanding horizon even to, to a few weeks in one go if we can, and, uh, and then we just let it go. So it's, uh, it's not comparable to the, to the level that we are doing now, for instance. And, and certainly it's not comparable to the levels uh, in routine, because then in routine we also do a planning once a week, but there are a lot of activities ongoing on the spacecraft. So there are a lot more data to look at, a lot more likelihood for things to, um, to, 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 to happen that need investigation and things like that. So it's, uh, but during the cruise, it's, it's really ups and downs, like you described. Yeah. Do you gather any interesting data, you know, throughout the journey, you know, where you're just going through, through space? I mean, is there anything interesting to look at or it's just boring? Well, um, there would be, in fact, because, um, well, you know, the whole solar system is interesting. So, and we have a, um, a laboratory on board, practically. We have a, a, a dozen of instruments on the MPO and half a dozen on the MMO that are geared at uh, uh, solar system exploration. So, in principle, they are very interested in getting operated also during the cruise phase, even so it's, it's not entirely part of our baseline, but we support them where we can. One big constraint we have, or two big constraints we have, is one, um, the, the, the instruments like the camera, uh, the remote sensing instruments, they are actually blocked, the, the, their uh, ball site is blocked by the transfer module. This is the way the, the composite has been built. Um, so basically these instruments do not have a line of sight to anything except the partner module, which is not very interesting. Um, so we can't do anything with them. But for the other uh, two-thirds of the MPU instruments, roughly, um, they are institute instruments, so they can be certainly switched on. Some of them will have their field of view a bit affected by the stack configuration, but it's not a reason not to operate. And um, we have requests that whenever we are not in thrust, um, and, and there is a possibility that we just switch them on, and then they gather data in inter interplanetary space, and it's very interesting for them. Also, for the Venus flyby, um, the, the geometry is such that um, 
one of our uh, remote sensing instruments to one of its opening will have view of Venus for uh, less than half an hour, but still apparently it's the first instrument of this type that uh, that will uh, have uh, make Venus observations from, from that close from the spacecraft. So they are very interested in doing that. So we are looking into it right now. So there will be like um, uh, windows of opportunity, if you like, um, and, and certainly some data gathering as well in the background. Uh, on the way, and where we can, we support them. The, the spacecraft is a bit constrained in terms of attitude, so we, we cannot, um, well, there are not many remote sensing instruments usable, but even for those that are usable, we do not have full freedom to reorient the spacecraft in space due to illumination constraints. We cannot put the sun on any of the sides of the spacecraft we like. It has to stay in front in, within very tight windows, so this is also limiting a bit what we can do. But again, um, where we can, we, we will do it. Yeah, this is the first mission I've heard that's essentially planet hopping on its way. Are there any other missions that would planet hop on their way out, you know, hit Mars and Jupiter? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not uncommon, in fact. I mean, in ESA, um, the Rosetta mission was like that. So Rosetta had uh, four hops, as you call them. So Rosetta flew by three times by Earth and one time at Mars. And in fact, Rosetta had um, also a dozen instruments. So uh, uh, Rosetta was a, a comet exploration mission, and uh, uh, therefore had, had instruments that were fully suited to observe planets. And they, they they did operate during the during the swing bys. In fact, the, the scientific committee was very interested in doing that, so it was uh, it was done. Um, and uh, our, our Jupiter mission, Juice, that uh, will uh, launch in the next decade, also has a, a few swing bys on the way uh, before it gets to Jupiter. So it's not uncommon. I mean. The flyby is a very effective way to to uh, um, change the trajectory uh, with the uh, energy uh, exchange uh, where you gain mass because you don't have to embark the fuel. So it's, uh, it's a very attractive technique for uh, for uh, controlling um, trajectories in uh, interplanetary space. So we're, we're not okay. the only one. I, I, even for, for Betty Colombo, we really have a lot. I mean, Rosetta had four swingbys and we have nine. So it's uh, it's a lot, but it's, uh, it's it's a common practice. Well, that's great. So, what are some resources for people that are interested to monitor the mission and learn more about it? Yeah, so we have a, a, a website. Um, so, uh, if you search Pepe Colombo Isa, then you will be pointed to the to the web pages. Um, we are on social media as well. So, there are on Facebook and Twitter um, regularly entries also for Pepe Colombo. When we when we have specific operations like uh, um, when when we were testing the electric propulsion engine for the first time and so on, we had uh, uh, we publish articles. There are uh, pictures taken by the by the spacecraft. I didn't mention, but uh, this will interest maybe or or uh, um, our public today. But uh, they, there are um, uh, uh, monitoring cameras on board the satellite, so we can do some selfies of the, of the spacecraft. Actually, so we have uh, nice uh, pictures and gifs of the solar arrays and the antennae of the Colombo, which are online. Uh, it's public material, and um, and when we have key uh, events like uh, for the launch or. Uh, uh, maybe for flyby, it's not yet discussed, but I, I imagine we'll do it for arrival at Mercury. Then around these moments, we, we, we have some uh, active tweeting as well to keep people informed. So, uh, yeah, you can find us on Internet and social media, and we look forward to the comments and uh, the interest of the various people. Well, very good. Well, also, thanks for coming, and I appreciated uh, learning about the mission. It was really cool. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. You're listening to the Future Tech Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies such as artificial intelligence, stem cells, 3D printing, gene editing, Bitcoin, blockchain, the microbiome, quantum computing, virtual reality, 
and exploring space are much closer than you might think. In fact, many early versions of these technologies are in play right now, and the companies that are using these technologies are the focus of this podcast. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a thorny medical problem. Remember, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and tell your friends about it. Thank you.